Look, teacher. Look, rabbi. What large stones, what large buildings. The words magnificent or large, something like that. When they walked out of the temple with Jesus. In defense of the disciples, if you go to Jerusalem and see even the ruins of the temple complex, it's astonishing. If you were alive at the time, it would have been the biggest thing you'd ever seen. Uh, it's to this day a magnificent architectural wonder to see the second temple that Herod built around the time of Jesus. So it's a pretty natural thing to be extremely impressed by the size and grandeur of that temple. Now, the disciples, we look at them and say, oh, they were just confused. They were thinking, you know, temples are just buildings. That's not what Jesus is about. He's about a new movement, a church. But it happens that in our language, our word, English word church, repeats the exact same error. So the, the primary meaning of church is a building. It's like, where are the churches? Oh, they're on the main street of the, the town. Church means buildings to us in its primary sense. And only secondarily, we have this traces back to what actually the word that Jesus said. I bet a number of you probably know the word that Jesus said in Greek when he says, I will establish my church. Anybody know what the word is? Yeah, ecclesia, ecclesia, ecclesial, the ecclesial world. Now, ecclesia is a funny choice. You would have thought that if you're developing this new movement, the natural thing to do, okay, you're gonna, it's not about a temple. It's not the word now. So that's uh, stones and you know, big buildings and sacrifices and cultic ritual. That's not what this movement is going to be about because as the Hebrews passage says, that sacrifice, Jesus is the temple and he's done the sacrifice. There's one and, one and all. You don't need a centralized system anymore of a cultic priestly system of sacrifices. But you got to have something. So what does he replace it with? The natural choice would have been synagogue. Those were around. There were local neighborhood things. And synagogue actually means pretty much what ecclesia means. In its formal sense, it just means assembly or some sort of gathering. So it's really funny that Jesus chooses a new word. But I think what's very little commented on is it's not just any word. Ecclesia would have meant just one thing to anyone in the Hellenistic context that Jesus is in. When they heard the word ecclesia, it wasn't a common word. It was used for a very specific place in a very specific body. I actually wasn't aware of this. Ecclesia meant the Athenian assembly. And I had to, I couldn't believe it. I actually spent Saturday looking up some of the classical liturgy. Classicists have compiled the entire corpus of all Greek, basically written texts that we know of. And you can look up a word and see where is it used. And so there it is in Herodotus and Aristotle and Plato. And every single time, it refers to a very specific place. It's a body that met in the shadow of the Parthenon, in the Agora, you would have, it's called the, 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 the Punix or something. They had about 6,000 people would gather. And about every 10 days or so, there would be an assembly. That was the Athenian assembly. This is the vaunted origins of Western democracy. That's the word Jesus is translated in Matthew 16 using. And pretty much before that, there is no real occurrences that I can find where this is just ecclesia is used in a normal sense. It's always referring to that thing. Why did he choose that? It's an interesting transformation. The temple would have been about sacrifices. The agora and the, the ecclesia 
It was a convocation that's called to a purpose. And something like, I don't know, I'm speculating, something like a deliberative group process of living out their lives together. They're actually kind of working out what it is to live together in a communal setting, in a community. And yet, it's not like the Athenian one at all. It's so different. The Athenian one is filled with stories of prestige and honor and political intrigue. Your status determined who could speak. Only the, a certain class of wealthy elite males basically participated. And the church couldn't be more different. The movement that Jesus uses, and he borrows the same word, ends up being a place that is not seeking to serve, or sorry, it's not seeking to govern in the sense that the Athenian one would have been. It's seeking to serve. And it's certainly not about the prestige and honor of political power. It's about a hospital for sinners. You couldn't get more different in contrast. And yet that's the word he uses. I have no idea, but I found the more I learn about the New Testament and a lot of the ways that Jesus teaches, I, I grow less and less sure that any of this is an accident. The philosopher Dallas Willard says, Jesus is a master of political, of, of like public relations, of marketing, of branding. Think about the cross. Cross. Madison Avenue could not come up with a simpler, more evocative symbol, execution symbol. So powerful in its content. So easy. Anyone can draw that. Ecclesia, there's something there. He uses the Greek assembly. Well, this is the frustrating thing for every church. Jesus says relatively little about, after that about how to run the church, the concrete operation of it. How's it supposed to function? Should it be centralized or decentralized? What's its governance look like? This is the ins and outs of church polity. Certainly gets people excited. But the New Testament does fill in a little bit, but just in thematic ways. So Ecclesia comes across all through the New Testament. After the Gospels, it's mainly in Matthew. But after that, it comes up uh, in the epistles and in, so in, the, in the thematic ways they talk about it. Their focus is, you could sum it up, and like, here's general principles, how to run the church. And they sound like they're straight out of a popular business book. The church is going to be global. It's going to be very interconnected and interdependent. And it's going to look for, it's going to place a high value on staffing, personnel choices, high standards for, for the people that you have in charge. So the way I wanted to get into our diocese is let's think about how it, how it compares on these features. Because this is an ideal, and as you know, the church never lives up to that ideal in its history. And in many ways, just like the Athenian assembly had some horrific, uh, even though it's a celebrated, vaunted birthplace of democracy, it has some very bad chapters, including, personally to me, that I take one kind of personally, putting to death Socrates. So I'm forgiven him for that. But <clears throat> the church also has its share of very horrific stains in its history, and so you have to go back to the New Testament and think, how, how is it doing on these ideals? Well, I actually didn't know, because when I came to this church, I, we came here for you all. We didn't come here for the diocese. I didn't know there was a I, mean, I was vaguely aware there's some diocese. We, we're not a church that's in contact with our diocese, so we're very different from the rest of the diocese. Because we're remote, we're actually kind of far from, the nearest one is Buffalo, I guess, yeah. So we don't have a lot of close connection with this. We don't run into the people. They don't exchange around. Um, so Ryan and Amy actually tend to know a lot of these people. And a few of you have gone to those retreats. But the rest of us, we don't know anything about this. So uh, I had to learn the, 
very quickly when I got thrown into the diocesan council, which is basically the vestry for the diocese. It's just like the vestry for our church. This is the, like, the body that meets to do all the business meetings with the bishop. And so everyone else seemed to know a lot about it. I didn't know anything about it. So here's what I found out, which I was a little surprised by. Global interconnected high quality leaders. Let's see. Global. Well, there's a whole story about our particular denomination. Uh, we are in the ACNA and not in the Episcopal Church. We are part of the Anglican Communion. And that's a very complicated story, which I'm not even qualified to, to talk about because I don't quite understand the whole details of it myself. It's a rather sordid story. You could go through it. But here's the upshot. It meant that we have a very tight personal connection as a diocese with Africa, with Rwanda specifically. So when I go through our budget, they say, oh, there's this line item. We just send right away. We send basically 10% to the AC, split between the ACNA and then to the province of, well, the Rwandan, Perusa, like the, the Rwandan body that basically helped us get on our feet. We've kept up those ties, and a number of the people that I've met in the diocese go back to Rwanda, and they know these people personally, and the Rwandans come here. So they're actually quite connected with that particular African community. On top of that, they have a, a yearly meeting, and, and two weeks ago, Scott and Angela and I, we went down to McLean, Virginia, and we went to the Presbyterian Church there where they hosted a big uh, three-day meeting. It's about, picture, several hundred clergy I don't know, maybe that's 100, 100 plus clergy. It looks very impressive when they're all vested. And then there's just like, there's a much smaller number of us who are lay, lay delegates coming from the churches. So it's, it's one time when it's reversed. It's like, well, you're in a church where there's all clergy and like, I underdressed. So um, in that setting, they have a theme every year. This, theme, this year, the theme was migration and immigration. They actually brought an Old Testament professor from Wheaton, Daniel Carroll, they had us all read his book beforehand, and he spoke. He gave uh, probably four talks or so, uh, so on his book, basically. And the themes were about how does the church stay uh, aware and connected to migrant communities? How do we keep looking to find ways to serve one of these three great categories in, you know, in the Old Testament recurring, the, the, the widow, the orphan, and the alien? This church, they are focused on trying to reach out in both here and elsewhere. But it was more than that. There's also a currently a movement happening, and we got some reports of it now, and I've heard bits and pieces from the bishop over the last year. There are a number of migrant churches in our diocese or in our geographic area that have now asked to join us. There are, there, so far, there's three or so congregations, I believe. There's uh, a Kenyan congregation, and there's a Sudanese congregation. On top of that, they have clergy of their own, and they have a bishop, a bishop in Sudan. And that story is amazing. I've heard this little, little pieces, but Bishop Andudu, who now is he, in a Sudanese church, which, as you know, is racked by civil war, uh, Islamic and Christian, basically, conflict, among other things. And there he had a pretty powerful status in the sense that he was uh, within a church that was recognized by the government and was... Um, a pretty important Christian Anglican, the Anglican community there is very large. Well, the president in the post kind of reconciliation era uh, had a commission on how to implement Sharia law and asked this bishop to be part of it. And he respectfully declined. He didn't protest or anything. He just said, I can't participate, but I, I have no problem, you know, like, 
His house was subsequently shot up. His church was shot up. Militants attacked them both. As it happened, providentially, he was in the U.S. for a health treatment. But immediately he found he couldn't go back. Now, he's known us for a while, and he's insisted, I'm going to try and get back. The whole time he was determined to get back. He didn't, those are my people. And so what he did is he goes to a neighboring country, crosses the border by foot, meets with a number of different church people that he knows, basically knowing he will be executed if he's caught. These are the kind of people they have. He is now joining our diocese to be working with our bishop because now he's realizing there's no going back at this point. They've really put, it, put an end to that. So he's like, well, how do we work with the Sudanese churches here? Let's figure out a way. How do we help them back there from here? These are all things that are just developing. We don't know how they're going to play out, but it's, it shows you where this church's heart is, where this diocese is working. So global, interconnected. In the New Testament, there's a lot of discussion in the epistles about rich churches helping poor churches and having different things to offer across ethnicity, across class and power lines. This is something I didn't know about our own church. We get a huge chunk of money from this diocese every year for the past five years. I'm going to need you to know, I I believe it's 30,000 a year right now, and it's been over five? Five We have a five-year rise. It's $150,000 that they poured into us. And I go down and I meet these people. They all know us. They pray for us. They pray for you sitting in these seats. And they are committed to getting this church off the ground. I didn't know about them. I didn't realize that they were sinking that kind of money and in time and attention. And they have meetings where they strategize about who and where and how to plant churches. They are obsessed with planting churches in a good way. Church planting is is such an obsession that in their budget, they basically take half of their budget, and it just goes right back to churches. That's unheard of, and it frankly kind of wonder if it's totally sustainable myself being in the council, but it shows you their commitment to basically, they have a very low operating budget, light footprint. They meet in the bishop's basement right now. They don't even have a proper office. There's a couple staff. It's a very tiny operation, but they're devoted to just finding and planting churches, and those church plants, by the way, are very interesting. They're in often rural, very poor areas. There's one brewing right now in, in West Virginia, There's another in South Carolina, relatively difficult places. And the funny thing is they'll say, and you, bread of life, Ithaca. We know Ithaca's a tough place. It's a tough place for a church. And they're committed to the Northeast in general. And so all these churches, so you meet so many, there's so many people from North Carolina. That's one thing we found. Um, Everyone's from North Carolina when you go to one of these things. But wow, are they committed to like, oh, you guys are in Ithaca. Yeah, we want to support that church. We're one of the people on their radar because of that, which I was impressed by. Um, So they're global, they're interconnected, and finally, people, leaders, staffing. So you probably, a number of you have met the bishop. He's kind of a crazy guy. He's off the charts in energy level and constantly, I mean, he's he's going all the time. He just has, and he wakes up and he is thinking about how do I spread the gospel? How do I put in places? He's he's big into business school talk and the jargon is like, how do I put processes and strategies this way? We're going to do that. And he's got initiatives. He's got energy. And he has a lot of wisdom about how to, how to work these things. I've been amazed by not just him, but his staff. I got to know some of the staff. I'm like, wow, for given what we're paying for these people, I can't believe they work for them. <laughs> they're really good. They're really, they're so sharp. They're so devoted. And then I met a bunch of the clergy. Now, I didn't know there's a whole bunch of other people like Ryan out there that are just waiting to plant churches and put, a, you know, put out this energy out. And that, it struck me, this, this, these people 
are really a class apart. Now, I spent three years in seminary, so that's, there's no better way to kind of demystify and take clergy off the pedestal than spending three years with them in school. So I have no, I'm not starstruck by people who are ordained with clergy. But these people, they are different. <laughs> I'm like, where were you in seminary? These people are living the life. They are actually being, they're putting everything on the line. They're going off into places and they're willing to work, do whatever it takes to make these movements work. So I've been ama- amazed and astonished by just how, how competent, how capable they are. So I thought, overall, our diocese does pretty well. It hits the big three, I thought. It definitely has a focus that's global, it's interconnected, and really powerful staffing. But of all those, let's go back to the Ecclesia talk. The way that we think of Ecclesia, I think for most of us, it's family. A church is kind of like your extended family in a way. And it, it's a unique institution. Ecclesia is very hard to define. There's, no, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the church. It's kind of like a corporation, but it's not. It's kind of like a hierarchical institution like the military, but it's not. It's kind of like a family in some ways, but your family probably doesn't have 50-year strategic plans. It's really different than anything you can think of. But in as much, it's not less than any of those things. It is like a family for us. So what I find in this diocese, the way I'm starting to think about it, it's like your extended, extended family. There's all these cousins you've never met. You didn't know. They're out there, and they're really working for us and with us and praying for us as well. So you can't, they say you can't choose your family in some ways, but thanks be to God, turns out we have a pretty good one. Amen.